Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Vinny. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Excited to be here, Jeremy. Yeah, we've known each other since New York before the pandemic. And it's been nice to see you just continue to make great leadership roles in fintech and also be a content creator in fintech and Southeast Asia space, which is super hot. So uh, it's interesting to have you on stage. Yeah, it's been fun creating content just like you. I think you inspired me a little bit. Oh, that's so sweet of you. Vinay, for those who don't know you yet, could you introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm currently regional head at WISE, basically heading up WISE platform, which is our infrastructure division of WISE for APAC. And WISE is basically, if you haven't heard of WISE already, it's a leader in cross-border money movement. We process nearly $100 billion every year, and we employ 2,200 people across 14 global offices. And WISE platform, which is really what I kind of work on on a day-to-day basis, is the third and newest pillar of WISE's products. So basically allowing platforms like Google Pay and banks like Monzo and N26 to integrate and benefit from WISE's powerful global payments infrastructure. Previously, I was director USA at Arcus, which is a YC and Andreessen-backed Series B fintech based in New York. And I was focusing basically on Latin America and the U.S. Fairly similar in terms of product. I was working on B2B software service products, kind of payments related. I was doing debt consolidation, bill payments and merchant payments. What I think was cool was I helped to scale volume at Arcus, which is really, I guess, the metric that fintechs, especially B2B fintechs look at. I managed to scale the processing volume to 1 billion annually, which was a 1,000% increase year on year. So that was a pretty big win. And I'm, I'm excited to kind of see similar metrics come up in Southeast Asia, which is why I'm so excited to be back in this part of the world. Amazing. How did technology first kick in as a bug that you needed to work in? Yeah, so it's actually kind of a story of many happy accidents. I have always sort of been interested in this confluence between traditional industries as well as tech. I think there are certain reputational advantages to certain industries. For example, just to kind of give you some background, how I ended up in tech was when I finished national service many moons ago. I was looking for a part-time job. I was looking to basically spend some time before I joined university. And one of the people in my school alumni network basically said that they're looking for someone to basically help out Singapore Law Society, which is Singapore's network for practicing lawyers. And they had a new product for continuing professional education. So they wanted me to just come down and help market their tech product to lawyers. And it was just a roadshow. I think I did a good job. Someone noticed me and asked me to join full-time at a company called Opus2, which is a UK-based legal technology company. And what they really do is basically 
paperless trials, which is a completely new and fascinating concept here in this part of the world, but it's been around, I guess, for a couple of years at that point in time in the UK. And what paperless trials really are, taking the bundling, taking the kind of very manual processes involved in law and putting it on the cloud. So you can go in a courtroom and not have a piece of paper at all. The moment a piece of evidence is being shared, the tribunal sees it, the solicitors see it, and even the audience can see it. So what I was doing at that point when I was at that post-NS stage in my life was I was an electronic presentation of evidence officer in court. So I would basically help out the judges in terms of presenting evidence in court. And what that really exposed me to is the fact that even these kind of gray-haired folks are embracing tech. And what is interesting is the fact that we've trusted lawyers in the law because there are these high barriers to entry from an information perspective. So these areas have been fairly resistant to change. But as things are evolving from you know, just a trust perspective in terms of who we can understand and also how kind of things are being optimized, we can see that even software is actually eating the world of law. So I kind of fell in love with that approach at that point of time and have always been intrigued on how I can contribute and how I can kind of further this interest. And I kind of ended up being in fintech by that curiosity. Just a bit of a story there as well, another one to kind of dive into. I, I landed up in New York with a program called NUS Overseas Colleges. I was actually initially at a company which was pretty interesting as well. But what I really wanted to go to New York to do is to really be exposed and to kind of have challenges. And I felt the initial company I worked at didn't really present those. So I dived into a new one. I kind of quit that role, uh, which is a moment of bravery for me because I had one month to secure a new role and found 20 companies on the YC list for New York. I just applied to all of them and said, like, I'd love to be a part. You know, I'd love to kind of work for you. Uh, One of them reached out back and that was Arcus. And that's how I started my journey into fintech. I always had this idea that New York, Wall Street, finance, plus tech. What does that plus tech mean? What is that kind of going to do to the rest of the financial industry in New York? So I found it really fun to be there and uh, kind of have this opportunity. So when I joined Arcus, that was basically how I got into fintech. I was doing very basic stuff, very basic operational stuff, very basic sales stuff. I did whatever I needed to just to kind of learn about fintech. And that's kind of what allowed me to stay. I took on a full-time job with Arcus after I graduated university. And that is kind of the the start of my journey into fintech. Amazing. And what is it about fintech that not only attracted you in, but also is something that you chose to deepen your focus on? I think what I really enjoyed about fintech is the fact that there's so much nuance in everything. If you think about it, payments seems straightforward initially. But when you zoom in just a little bit more, there's there's a regulatory aspect to it. There's the tech aspect to it. There's the kind of how do you operationalize these things? As much as you have the tech and the regulatory checked off, how do you get the right players to work together to kind of align and assign responsibilities? And I found that extremely rewarding, especially when you get all of those things right. So I think Personally, like I also found it really interesting on how 
different things have worked across different industries with fintech. So if you look at the US and compare that to LATAM, there's so much variation. And there's so much in terms of things that have been done well in the US that maybe haven't been done well in LATAM and vice versa. So there's a lot of learnings. There's a lot of room for optimization. And I think kind of going back to a conversation I had with a friend when I was kind of in university was they studied biotech and I studied economics. And I asked this friend of mine, what keeps you interested in biotech? And he said, it's the fact that there's always something new. And the, the fact that there's certain topics that are kind of at the periphery or at the edge of what is known. I didn't really feel the same way for economics. I felt like most stuff had kind of been understood by and large. And the cool thing about fintech is that we haven't quite optimized everything just yet. There's a lot more that we can do. And we're still understanding how all those three pieces, the regulatory, the operational and the tech can work together and kind of optimize basically the end consumer experience. So that's kind of what's kept me in and continues to keep me in the loop with fintech. And what's interesting, of course, is that it's not only interesting, but also it's super hot right now. And so what do you think is the reason what's driving the hotness behind fintech? I mean, if you look at, for example, Southeast Asia, the amount of fintech activity has just been astounding. If you just kind of zoom out and just look, I guess, broadly from a population perspective, Indonesia has a population of about 267 million. 92 million of those are unbanked. So that's like 34%. If you look at Philippines, it's about 107 million population, 51.2 million unbanked. So close to 50%. So there's a lot of opportunity in terms of digital inclusion. And when you think about digital inclusion, it also means financial inclusion. And the fact that these countries are really kind of benefiting from what has been recently termed the last mover advantage in the sense that a lot of those initial mistakes and a lot of those initial missteps in terms of digitalization has been done already by the US and Europe and other parts of the world. A lot of these countries can kind of scale up and adopt best practices. And I think by and large, we're able to see that fintech is kind of one of those best practices in terms of allowing people to have financial inclusion. It's one of the key trends that's helping develop that heat, just zooming up. But in terms of specific trends that are driving innovation in fintech in the region, I think there are kind of few clear trends as well. So first, open finance. There's this rising middle class that wants access to financial products. So integrating the network nodes of fintechs, consumers, and financial institutions working together has kind of been pushing that along. And then secondly, B2B. B2B has been enormously growing across Southeast Asia in terms of fintech. So after the first wave of digitization that was initially focused on e-commerce and digital consumer behavior, those merchants themselves are also becoming more digitized and seeking digital solutions. So we're seeing basically increases in B2B payments, cross-border transactions, merchant financing, and tons of other financial services. Finally, what, what we're also seeing is increasing consumer purchasing and savings region-wide. So there's basically this really big acceleration in terms of consumer-facing financial services. So retail investing, savings, card products, so on. When you have this awareness around what can be done, 
And I think that'll be best served by the next generation of fintech-facing consumer products. Makes a lot of sense. What are some myths or misconceptions about fintech? A common one, if I was to think of one, is just the idea that fintech really involves some kind of really deep tech, which it doesn't. As I said, it's kind of three things. Like there's tech, there's regulatory, and there's operations. I think those are three kind of main pillars around it. And if you think about it, the tech itself just really needs to address the compliance concerns of regulators, of maybe industry partners, and being able to do that in a smart way. It does not require a lot of the buzzwords like AI, ML, and things like that. So I think that's probably one. And what that means is that in terms of addressing fintech challenges or even financial challenges, what really needs to be done is that you need to work with the right experts in the space. So people that are aware, how do you navigate through the compliance landscape? If you want to, for example, have an e-money license in Malaysia, how are you able to do that with the right bank fulfill the right KYC requirements for the user, onboard the right types of merchants to do that. It's it's a lot of that behavior that needs to be done and optimized for rather than thinking of how do you hire the best tech, the best engineers out there. It's really about having a lot of understanding about the nuances in the space and then you can sort of go on and multiply. A lot of people think fintech is overhyped, which is there was a wave of fintech that's being built. And so there feels like a new rush of people headed towards fintech as well. Different approaches, different dynamics. Do you think it's overhyped or do you think there's still room to grow and go? I think there's tons of room to grow. And I, I wouldn't say that if I, if, if I wasn't kind of like, I guess, pushing even my own skin in the game into fintech. Recently, I started a fintech-focused angel investing syndicate in Southeast Asia called Fintech Angel Operators. I started this with a couple of other folks that you might already know, like Chia Zhengyang. And we're really kind of the first fintech-focused syndicate in Southeast Asia. Collectively, we are founders, senior executives, industry experts. And what we're trying to do is provide startups with what we call like an unfair advantage to win in Southeast Asia. Because smart founders know that cherry-picking the right investors will set them up with a competitive edge in the long run. So I, I think that, for example, just some of the kind of fintech founders that we were seeing come up really represent what the next five to 10 years of fintech will look like. And I think the fact is that we're seeing that level of trust come up from the industry Already, like the level of investments that we're seeing in Q1 2021, record high in VC dollars. So we have $22.8 billion solely in fintech. Personally, I'm super bullish on infrastructure, just as a way to level the playing field and enable financial inclusion. My entire career in fintech has been entirely around infrastructure. One of my sayings is that APIs are like a force multiplier for good. Through offering APIs, say debt consolidation via API like I did at Arcus, we're able to consolidate debt, reduce that kind of burden for people. And not just one person, we're able to do that for an entire kind of cohort of customers when we integrate with a partner. At WISE, if we integrate with a bank, we're able to offer transparent and low-cost remittances at scale, so to the entire cohort of customers that the bank would be serviced with WISE. So really, I guess like what I'm really keen on is how fintech can help democratize financial services with infrastructure. And I think embedding basically infrastructure 
into preferred and familiar financial services platforms that consumers already use is the best way to kind of get there. What about this conservative argument that more fintech is bad news because we're giving credit to people who aren't wise enough to use it? So there's Robinhood, we're giving access to lots of traders. There's Buy Now Pay Data, which is now under regulatory scrutiny. So there's lots of different dynamics around increasing access to credit. So what do you think about that? I think it's a natural hazard if you give a child, for example, a knife at an early age that's not ideal. So should you be giving a child a knife? Well, if they're in the jungle and they need to defend themselves, probably yes. But otherwise, probably no. So I think certain things like, for example, trading, for example, buy now, pay later. I think those are things where you have the knife. The knife is made possible due to the payments infrastructure, due to the tech being there. Now, whether it is should be available to certain people, I think that is a question that we haven't quite answered yet. I think the regulation is just catching up with it because fintech has moved so quickly that we haven't been able to actually catch up with it. So I personally think these are amazing tools. We've actually managed to kind of democratize access to retail investors with Robinhood, with accessible credit, with buy now, pay later, like Hula and so on, people that previously couldn't afford, like say credit cards or personal loans. And so I think along with that product and along with all of that coming up, we need to have one, education. So we need to make sure that people are aware of what they're consuming, not just from a disclosure perspective, from some kind of user agreement perspective, but actually telling them, we care about you. We want to make sure that you're doing the right thing. This is what you're doing. So I think that should be embedded by the companies themselves. But if not, I think we should also have the regulators, so the government, whether that's the central bank or the banking regulation actually stating that you as a provider of these services have to educate your consumers. And you can also not onboard maybe 16-year-olds that want to buy stuff on credit when you don't really have the ability to pay it back. That's my thoughts on it. You know, you mentioned regulators, which seems to be the key component because so much of finance is really about regulation and the regulatory agencies. And I think there's two dynamics. The first, of course, is that it feels like Southeast Asia countries and governments are really biased towards having people save, save towards their retirement, save, 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 but much more against too much credit being extended to consumers. I think that feels to be one sense. And then the second thing, of course, is that a lot of the incumbent banks are pretty much saying, hey, we already play by all these rules against money laundering and all these other things. And so all we want is we want these fintech startups to be subject to the same level of regulatory scrutiny and diligence as the incumbents. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that's fair? Do you think that's the stance that government should take? Do you think that's how uh, banking incumbents should also take that position? I think yes. I do think that if you're offering the same type of weapon or same type of sword, and there is potentially some harm that can be done either to yourself or to others, I think we should be kind of taking that same approach. Now, one of the concerns really is when you onboard basically like a, with a fintech, you have to do a lot less of the kind of manual processes of maybe taking a picture of your passport and, and things like that. You can actually onboard a lot more quickly. So 
unlike a bank where you might have to kind of go to the branch and open an account and so on and so forth. So it's a lot of those differences in terms of being digitized versus being physical. So aligning that and streamlining that I think is important. So that is a different challenge. I think it's a data security challenge. And I don't think we've kind of fully understood how to address that. If you think about banking regulation in the U.S., and maybe contrast that to the EU. And I think these have both kind of reached a level of maturity. The US basically says you have these certain statutes or these certain like premises, and you just basically need to meet that. What you do in terms of getting there in terms of like, say, you need to collect XYZ or you need to do ABC, they don't specify. In the EU, you say there are 10 parameters you need to collect from users. Once you do that, you've done the necessary amount of KYC. I think both approaches are valuable. The US approach allows companies to potentially actually get out there and build more quickly because it only takes for the banking regulators to say, hey, you're not doing enough, and then they adjust. Whereas the EU says you have to actually follow all of these kind of long laundry list of standards before you can actually get there. I think what we need to do in Asia, where we're kind of growing towards either of those approaches, is try and find the right balance in terms of how do we make sure that we're getting the relevant amount of data, the relevant amount of controls, just to make sure that fraud risks are low, AML is low, and so on and so forth, as well as allowing innovation and as well as allowing things to kind of grow organically. It's a tricky one, but I think just in terms of the way uh, Bank Indonesia, I think, is going to roll out a couple of new standards. BNM and Malaysia is also kind of moving the right direction. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that just as I said earlier, the last mover advantage, just in terms of being able to see that this is the way things have been done. This is the way we can now do things, puts us at a really good position. What's your point of view on last mover advantage? Because you were someone who has seen both sides of it, right? You've been in Southeast Asia and you're now you're back. And you've also been in the US, which is very much focused on first mover advantage. So what's your point of view on last mover advantage? I think it's just a perspective where we can look and see what has been done. And I think it's particularly relevant in fintech where we are really orchestrating multiple things together. It's not so much focused on how we do tech and how we basically build the best maybe AI ML models, but it's really about how do we align the different parties involved in providing a financial service. There's a lot of modularity in fintech. Like if you want to provide a fintech service, like for example, buy now, pay later, you have to one, work with a lender who's kind of able to provide you with that wholesale line of credit. You have to then work with a provider, like a merchant or someone who can actually provide that service. And then you also have to work with the consumer. You have to work with the regulator. And you might have to work with kind of ancillary providers. If you want to provide a debit card, you'd have to have an issuer. You'd have to have a bank that's kind of underwriting that as well. So all those pieces, when, when they work together, can give you a bit of an understanding as to how financial products are built. When we're able to see that, and we're able to see that there's actually a lot of distribution challenges, a lot of kind of the data security and all of those kind of things that the US and EU have done, we can kind of look back and see that maybe it makes sense to align maybe for all of these providers to have similar KYC levels or that they're regulated quite fairly across the board as well. 
I think that's one of the key things that like an advantage from a last mover perspective. And I think another one is the fact that we know what consumers potentially want. Like we know that Robinhood is a model that works. We know that Afterpay is a model that works. We're able to see that and we're able to see that as consumers move to an X level of income, they might want a Y type of product. So we're able to see that as well. As opposed to kind of copying and pasting, we're also able to see that maybe this is the type of distribution that is localized and able to kind of suit the preferences of customers as well. I think that's one of the kind of big advantages we have from a last mover perspective. You've had some interesting trade-off, right, between continuing to work in the U.S. versus continuing to work in Southeast Asia. Tell us how did that work out? When you say trade-offs, I guess you mean, I guess, leaving New York City and moving to Singapore. So I did find it obviously kind of big change in terms of my life and in terms of what I was experienced with in New York. I spent about four years in New York before moving back to Singapore. And I actually moved kind of during the pandemic. I had about, I would say, six or seven months back in Singapore when I moved back to Singapore during the pandemic because I was not sure about how New York was going to handle the public health infrastructure perspective of things. And so I kind of looked back at Singapore and said, hey, this might be a good time for me to actually move back permanently. I looked at opportunities and actually I I was offered a role in New York with WISE. I told WISE that, hey, do you have something in Singapore? I might be interested to kind of stick around in Singapore. And so they said, not right now, but we'll get back to you. And I actually moved back to New York. And when I was back in New York in about November 2020, December 2020, I spoke to WISE again, and I got a role in Singapore. So about a month later, I found myself on a plane headed back to Singapore. And I realized this is an extremely exciting time to be back. And I I think in terms of trade-offs, the only thing I really miss is the Cats Delhi pastrami that is missing in my life right now. Yeah, and that's from the movie When Harry Met Sally, right? Uh, For those who don't know what it is. Yeah, Yeah, and you got to watch that scene. That's a good scene to watch on YouTube. <laughs> we'll leave if, that you know, if you know what if, I'm talking about, I if think. You, if you don't, yeah, okay. Some people are going to be surprised <laughs> when they watch this scene because they're going to be like, this is a boring one. We have no idea what Vinay Jeremy is talking yeah. about. Yeah. Okay. We had to be surprised. Okay. So let's leave it there. So, Vinay, one of the things I remember we were hanging out in New York was at a time both of us were discussing when and how the best time to be back in Southeast Asia was going to be. And it's interesting because you've done all of it, right? You've walked with me and we were discussing about how and when we made that decision. We've done the move. We've reflected on that move already. So how should someone who is in our shoes several years ago think about that? I'm going to ask you that question back as well in a moment. But before I do that, I think like, I guess the way I thought about it at time was how am I feeling with my current job? And have I reached a certain level of understanding about this particular area or this particular niche? And am I looking for something beyond this? Personally, what I was doing was very much focused on the US and Latin America. And I felt that at least in terms of the US, which I was more focused on, the industry was at least quite well established. The idea that you can use fintech to work with lenders, to work 
and, and do debt consolidation was fairly kind of familiar at that point of time. I think we reached a certain level of traction. I was pretty happy with how I had helped the company grow. Initially started off as an intern, then did BD, and then eventually oversaw the entire kind of US operations. So I was pretty happy with the way things were. And I felt that in order to grow, I kind of need to have an additional challenge, right? So when I came back to Singapore, and when I saw the things that were happening in Singapore, and the fact that Singapore really is like a hinterland for the rest of Southeast Asia. And there's an opportunity here sitting in Singapore to kind of do a lot of interesting cross-functional work in improving access to technology and democratizing financial services. I saw that as a really interesting and exciting opportunity to kind of move back to rather than kind of doing the same thing in New York and kind of puttering my way along. So that was my thinking. And I would think I would encourage everyone to kind of think along the lines of not just how from a comfort perspective you're feeling and whether that's okay, but whether Singapore has a lot of stuff going for it as well. Obviously, there's a lot of things that you have in terms of trade-offs, but there's a lot of things going for it. And I think the more you come back, the more you sort of think, oh yeah, this place is actually pretty awesome. What about you, Jeremy? How did you sort of think about this? I think the way I thought about it then versus how the way I think about it now is actually quite different. <laughs> okay. I think the way back then, of course, was just like, am I liking what I'm doing right now? Like you said, right? In the job versus what the potential future is going to be. And so it was very much driven by, like you said, jobs in the US versus jobs in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. entrepreneurial opportunity in US versus entrepreneurial opportunity in Southeast Asia. I think now that I'm looking back on it, I think the thing I would think a bit is just like asking that question working backwards a little bit, which is which country do you want to retire in, right? <laughs> you know, or which country do you want to live in, really? Right, right. Because I think if you don't love a country, like you wouldn't want to retire in that country. Yeah. That means that there is a clock on how much time you're gonna spend in that country. And when you have a clock on that that reduces your ability to know or feel comfortable that there is an infinite relationship with the people that you're working with, that you're collaborating with, making friends with. And so what that causes is that as a result, you can't build long-term compounding relationships with people in that country. And so I think that's the tricky part is that I think there's a lot of people who move out from Southeast Asia and they love America and they want, in the heart, would love to live in America forever. And I think for them, it's just like, then don't go back to Southeast Asia because yep. if you love America, right. then you're going to be able to work, found, collaborate, brainstorm with people. And you know that every relationship you build is going to be there for a long, long time, right? Yep. But mm-hmm. I think if your heart is not that you don't want to live or raise a family in America and you would rather be back in Southeast Asia, then that means there's a clock. And that clock is four years, 10 years. But still, the best working relationships are those that at the core of it, you have an infinite time with your partner, with your parents, your family, with your co-founders, these require like some level of infinite or lifetime relationship requirement to help you stay motivated and stay interested in investing in that relationship. That's super true. And I think the thing about New York is that there tends to be a sort of transience about city because people sort of go there at a certain stage of their life or to kind of do a certain thing that they want to do and then they leave. If you want to kind of be there for for that reason, 
that's great. But for me, at least, I, I guess I also didn't see myself being there forever. I mean, you know how that city is. It kind of drives you crazy after a certain point of time. To your point, I think the infinite kind of thinking, I think I can only experience here in Singapore, which is home for me. And I also find myself having, just in the course of the last year, a lot kind of deeper relationships being built. I think by virtue of the fact that I see myself staying around. Yeah, because you and I now know that we have 40, 50, 60 years of history. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the transactional way of looking at it is like, we're not going to fuck over each other because yeah. it's like 50 to 60 years where we're going to live in the same place. Yes. And we're running each other over and over again. So yeah, yeah. that's a transactional way of looking at it. But I think the relational point of view is just like, yeah, I get to know you for the next 50, 60 years. And so any time spent with each other is worthwhile. And I think... That's really important because I think there are some businesses where you can be more transactional. It doesn't really matter if you're there or not. If you're selling used cars on a one-time basis, that can be a little bit more transactional. But I think when it comes to technology, startups, there's a very long, long game. (laughs) 100%. Are you actually thinking of this from a game theory perspective? Because I actually read this book that looked at the fact that merchants and traders who basically kind of visited from the East Indies, I think, to Sri Lanka, were trading particular spices. There were two options. You can either sell them the bad spices, and then they would never come back again, or you could sell them good spices, and then they would come back again. And if you sell them, you go with option one, you might be able to make money for one game. But for the second one, you, you can actually kind of have repeated infinite, maybe not infinite, but at least a lot more transactions and build on that trust to actually kind of come back and do more such trades. I guess that's what we're doing here because we're positioned in a, in, in a country where we see ourselves doing more of such spice trading. <laughs> yeah, sorry. When you say spice trading, it sort of reminds me of Dune. Oh, yes. like, you know, the science fiction show. And so yep. It's like the spice must flow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think it's 100% true, right? Which is that I think at the end of the day, so much of it is this, especially Southeast Asia is such a melting plot of so many cultures and the hub of so much commerce across mm-hmm. the region, right, between East and mm-hmm. West, that I think that culture is strong, I think, at a fundamental level across all the different countries in Southeast Asia. So, Vinay, I think one thing I would love to dive a little bit deeper as well is, could you tell us about time that you have been brave? Absolutely. I think that one of the things that I've decided to do that I really wanted to do for a long time is to create content. Being able to create content obviously requires you to put yourself out there and also feel like you have something to contribute, which for the longest time I felt like I didn't really have the conviction to say that my voice necessarily is that unique in in a space where I think there are a lot of voices. So what I did recently is I started a weekly newsletter called Island Fintech Weekly, And what it is really is kind of inspired by a lot of the fintech newsletters in the US. But what what this has been, uh, I guess, Jeremy, has been homework for me. Moving back to Singapore, moving back to Southeast Asia, I needed to educate myself about the fintech landscape here. Like I said, there's the operational, there's the kind of regulation, and there's the tech. So all of those pieces, I just kind of wanted to get a better understanding of. And what better way to do that than kind of follow the local news, follow the trends, follow the fundraisers, follow the changes in regulation. So 
I started writing notes on this and on a weekly basis. And I realized that these notes could potentially be helpful to a broader audience. And so I decided to kind of publish that. I do basically two segments. Like I kind of have a tropical theme to it. So it's called Island Fintech Weekly. I go into the initial part, which is like a dip. It's called dips, where you go into a broad segment about what is the news like in this week. And then the second piece is called dives, where you kind of go into a bit more depth in terms of what are some maybe perspectives around fintech? What are some perspectives around maybe changes in regulation or a, a new fundraise or a new kind of startup that's come up? And so I had to basically kind of get over the fact that people may not like it or people may not find it useful or valuable and just kind of get to the perspective that this might help a few people or it might be useful. And so I've been doing that for about four months now. And I can honestly say it's been one of the best decisions I've made. One, in terms of being able to say that I have a story and an arc that I've created around what I feel are my views around fintech, just being able to kind of put that down pen to paper. And then two, in terms of building a certain community and building a sort of network of people that read this and find it valuable and also kind of feed back to me what they think. I think that two-way process has been really, really interesting. And then thirdly, it's also allowed me to have a lot more kind of visibility and exposure. And it's kind of led me to other opportunities. For example, starting in FinTech Angel Operators has been a kind of byproduct of the fact that th this has been around, right? And it's been read and it's been shared. So it's it's been a great kind of journey. It, it took a little bit of me sitting down and saying, is this any good? Should I be publishing this? But having done it, I think the first time I published it, I really didn't want to. I was not sure of it. And then kind of putting it out there on my LinkedIn or my Instagram or wherever I could, kind of sharing it was not like something I felt naturally happy about initially. But kind of right now, I feel like it's something that I've kind of almost imbibed as part of the process in terms of doing something that kind of requires you to put yourself out there. And now whenever I kind of publish it and whenever I hear people say, for example, I think recently, like I've, I've been really happy to hear that one of my friends in Canada has, has been writing his own kind of Island FinTech Weekly for Canada. He works in FinTech as well. And he's been doing this for 10 weeks and he sent it over to me saying that he's been inspired by Island FinTech Weekly. And that is so wonderful to see. Amazing. Thank you so much, Vinay, for sharing. I love to paraphrase the three big teams that I heard from you. The first is definitely about how you chose and entered technology, but also how you focus on financial technology and the huge upside and opportunity you see. The second, of course, is the deeper dive and from a specialist perspective on the opportunities, but also the regulatory dynamics about what a fair playing field looks like, what a last mover advantage is, and the different dynamics of it. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing about the different trade-offs and how to think about what is it like to focus on Southeast Asia, return from the US, the comparison in not just the startups, but also uh, the culture and conditions. And we talked about some of it, some of the compounding advantages in terms of relationship, but also I think some of the depth of relationships that are being built as well, as well as what you've been doing in terms of relearning the region in terms of fintech news and your amazing publication. For those who don't know how to find you, where can they find you? 
I have my newsletter, Island Fintech Weekly. I would love for you to read it and and kind of let me know what you think. So you can find it on islandfintechweekly.substack.com. And then I have my personal website where I write longer form think pieces, which is www.palathink.com, which is a play on my last name, which is P-A-L-A-T-H-I-N-K.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Vinny. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>